Hi, welcome to the Rocky River United Methodist Podcast, and uh, we're continuing our series, um, How to Understand or How to Read Your Bible. And we've looked at several different topics, um, and we really hope that all those have been really beneficial to you in helping you understand your Bible, helping you get more out of reading Scripture, helping you get more out of your daily devotions. Um, I know that me personally... I've been growing a lot in doing this um, podcast series of just doing a lot of research, a lot of um, digging into the text, and it's been very, very fruitful um, and has really helped, at least for me personally, in my own uh, personal devotion and walk and reading scripture and reading scripture, um, doing these studies. So we have, this is the last week of that study, and we're going to be looking at application. So kind of applying everything that we uh, that we have learned over the past couple weeks. Um, so we're going to read two different passages and break down both of those passages. Paul has a passage and I have a passage. We'll break both those passages down um, with all the different things that we have learned over the past several weeks. So um, I really hope that this is really, really beneficial to you. And um, we just really hope that um, these podcasts have helped, have helped you um, in your walk with God. So Paul, take it away. All right, application uh, is the is the word of the week um, as we finish our uh, process of, of explaining better understanding how to break down scripture, how to engage it um, as individuals, and, and we know that these are some of the, the same processes that our study groups here at the church go through um, as they engage the word together in a, a community setting. And I'm excited to get to application because um, that's really the the uh, the goal, isn't it? From the very beginning, is is to arrive at this point at the end after uh, going through each of these other stages uh, to to where we can finally say this is what I am supposed to get out of this passage. This is how I change. This is how my life changes on the other side. I, I either understand it differently or I'm inspired to something new, or uh, my, my actions change, my attitude changes, my thought processes change. Uh, so how is this passage uh, speaking to me in a manner that changes me on the other side? And, and that's uh, where we're finally arriving um, here in uh, the, the fourth week of this process of, of uh, breaking down Scripture together and going through each of these stages. So uh, to get to application, you have to go through all the other steps. And uh, ultimately, this is going to add up to Stephen and I were discussing uh, basically the experience for you all of listening to, to two sermons uh, while we're on a podcast, because this is really what um, the, the process of unveiling a sermon is uh, like or often is like is breaking down a passage of Scripture and, and ultimately arriving at a point where we're pulling some nugget of wisdom uh, away from it, some piece of application that changes us uh, on having, having experienced that Scripture, we come away changed. Um, so I want to take us to this passage from Genesis 22, uh, and it's going to feel, like I said, like a, a bit of a sermon without some of the, the, the cutesy illustrations in, in the mix, uh, just engaging the passage. And I, I chose this passage of a God testing Abraham because I truly think this, this passage is the, the total package and, and can offer quite a bit for us as we work through every step of uh, the process of breaking down Scripture. So the first thing we're going to do is read it together. So if you happen to have uh, a Bible handy, uh, you can follow along. I'm reading from the NIV version. If you don't, just uh, listen in, and it may be uh, familiar to some of you. This is Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested 
Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. So this is our passage for today, and we're going to walk through these uh, steps that we've been introducing you to over the course of the last uh, three weeks and on into the application today. First of all, uh, step one should be fairly simple. What biblical genre are we dealing with here? Uh, this is a, a story, so it's from the narrative genre. It's a, a historical event, the story of a historical event that actually took place. So this is, this is history, folks. On to historical context. So step two, we talked about how we, we break down the uh, context of a passage. What was the, the culture of uh, the place in which it took place? What is uh, the history, the historical events? What were the people like? Uh, what about the geography of, of where it took place? So God calls Abraham at the beginning of the passage and sends him to the region of Moriah. So our minds go directly to the question, first of all, what can we learn about the geography of this story? Because that's where God uh, starts us off. And right off the bat here, we have a potential doozy. The, the region of Moriah, friends, is, is only mentioned one other place in all the scripture, and that is later in Second Chronicles 3 as a reference to the location of the temple in Jerusalem. It's the, the place uh, that Isaac apparently is, is about to be sacrificed and is at the exact same place that the, the Jerusalem temple will eventually be built. Now, we don't know for sure. We have two places that uh, indicate that they have the same name. So it's possible that this is just coincidence. There are other passages in Scripture where this happens. Or, uh, multiple places have the same name. But uh, what if it were true? 
What if it were true? First of all, one piece of evidence that it might not be the same Mariah described here in this story as uh, the Mariah of the Jerusalem temple is that we're told Abraham hauls his own firewood with him. We look at uh, these clues in the passage. He brings his old firewood on what would amount to a three-day journey to get from where he was to this place where he's to sacrifice Isaac. And he presumably brings his own his own wood because he, he knows the place he's going has no access to firewood. Why else would he bring his own? Well, the hills in, in the areas surrounding the Jerusalem temple had plenty of wooded areas. So uh, this is one clue that perhaps these are not the same places. They're two separate places called Moriah. And these are, this is, uh, at least to me, some of the, the funnest parts of breaking down historical context is you get to, to piece together clues uh, like this to be able to dig deeper and understand more about a passage. Um, but on the other hand, what if they are the same place? What if these two Mariahs are the same Mariahs? Think about it. Abraham prepares to sacrifice his only son in this place and instead is provided with a ram as a perfect substitute to die in his son's place. Now, hundreds of years later, this would also become, if this is the same Mariah, the exact site where countless sacrifices of the animal variety occur as part of the sacrificial system for the Israelites in the temple. And also, this would be steps away from the site where Jesus, God's only son, is sacrificed for all of us. So, once again, we have to be cautious when there are uncertainties in the historical context. But if this is a connection that we can indeed make, then God is already saying something pretty powerful to us through this story just by the location, just by the geography of it, where he sends Abraham to. Isaac's near sacrifice is somehow then connected to the sacrificial system of the Jews and then Jesus' sacrifice on the cross centuries later. More on historical context. What about the notion of human sacrifice? You can't read this story without coming, that coming to mind, right? A pretty awful idea, but not nearly as shocking as we look into uh, the history of this uh, geographical area. Not nearly as shocking, perhaps, to Abraham as it, as it would be for us. Abraham was living in the area of the people known as the Canaanites. And the religion of the Canaanites included this concept that the God who granted them fertility could also demand a portion back of what he had produced. Sometimes it was only animals or grain, but other times uh, the gods of the area would demand a child back, a child sacrifice. The people would sacrifice uh, one of their own children to the gods in order to ensure continued fertility in the future. Even though God's law would, would clearly forbid this practice later on, that this was not a, a Christian or a Jewish practice that God was okay with, based on the culture he lived in at this time, Abraham is still operating here under the, the understanding that this kind of thing, this, this child sacrifice thing can and does happen, and perhaps in this story is assuming that it's about to happen uh, to him, and, and he's accepting this as part of the culture that he lives in. What other elements of historical context can we look at? Uh, we want to be as thorough as possible, right? One thing to note is that God's people often encountered him in various forms upon mountains. So this story, he's, he's being sent to a mountain to sacrifice Isaac. And in the ancient world, it was customary that people would encounter their gods in places of high elevation, closest to where it was presumed their gods lived, up in the sky. So God, too, encountered his children on mountains time and time and time again. 
and with this also potentially being the same mountain upon which the city of Jerusalem would later be built and the temple would later be built and Jesus would eventually die, uh, we can, we can uh, glean more from the significance of this being a mountain and this very mountain uh, than we otherwise would without the historical context. Uh, finally, we, we can also talk about altars, right? It's important to understand that altars were often constructed in places where uh, the people were going to have some exchange with their God, typically as a means of offering their gifts to God. So the, the uh, presence of an altar here, Abraham building an altar, is significant to the historical context as well. Our second step is called bridging context. Maybe you remember that uh, from just last week, actually. How, did, how does this passage relate to the larger story of Scripture? In our last episode, Stephen covered the subject of covenant. Abraham, uh, in Scripture, is the first character for whom we get to see this, this long, drawn-out, developing, and sometimes troubled relationship with his God. In his relationship with Abraham, God was beginning to lay the foundation for the relationship that he would have with his chosen people throughout history. And he did so by establishing a covenant with him. Abraham would worship God, would trust and obey him without question, and God would provide for his every need, bless him with prosperity and many descendants. So our job as the reader is to try to understand how this covenant and the ways God relates to Abraham speaks to the rest of the story of Scripture and directly to us. One constant in the relationship is that God always upholds his end of the covenant. God never fails Abraham, but could Abraham fulfill his end? Uh, would he be able to pass the test as this is uh, described in the passage? We often think of a test as a way to evaluate whether somebody has accomplished enough or whether they are good enough. But sometimes tests are used as, as ways to teach us more, to, to compel us to further learning and, and challenge us further. And that's really what's going on here in God's testing of Abraham. Would Abraham be willing, be able to fulfill his end of the covenant, which included being willing to, to obey God without question, to sacrifice anything that God asked him to? Would he make the greatest sacrifice of all, giving up the life of his son, who he had, and his wife had prayed for, for for decades and had miraculously been granted them after Sarah had been barren uh, her, her entire life? Would Abraham be able to give up his son for God? It seemed the answer was yes. So in the larger scope of Scripture, Abraham represents the model for faithfulness and, and sacrifice, showing no hesitation in giving up his only son, at, but a, a simple command from the Lord. And this is seen throughout the Old Testament, or, or the New Testament, I'm sorry. Abraham is referenced uh, multiple times, in fact, at least three times, where God uplifts Abraham as an example of faithfulness and, and righteousness and how much he trusted and obeyed God uh, no matter what. Not only does Abraham exemplify faithfulness to God, uh, but this passage also clearly parallels the message found in John 3.16, one of the most uh, famous, well-known verses in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world, right, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves us so much, he gave his only Son to die in our place. Boy, that, that sounds familiar, like there might be some parallels, some overlap between that and Abraham's story. Abraham, we find out in the story, he was willing to sacrifice his own one and only son, his own beloved son, out of obedience to God. And we have to ask ourselves, maybe God set up the whole thing of Sarah's barrenness and years and years of, of yearning for a child and God promising that one would come in order for, for them to, to, uh, 
to receive Isaac as a blessing and, and fall in love with not just the idea of having a son, but, but their son himself. And then years later, all of a sudden, all of that maybe was setting up this moment where Abraham is asked to turn this incredible gift back over to God. And uh, this whole drama plays out to set up this, this event where God is testing Abraham, seeing how, how extensive his faith really is. And Abraham passes the test. So we're granted this image then as an example of uh, true devotion, that, that Abraham is a person truly devoted to God. Uh, but the other part of this story includes the twist at the end, right? Abraham is rescued from his plight, even though he was willing to give up his son. He's, he's uh, set free from that task. And a ram and a thicket is provided to take the place of Isaac to die in his stead. So in the same way, God shows his perfect love for his children by showing that he's not just willing to sacrifice his son, but as we link this to John 3.16, that he actually went through with it. So we all belong in Isaac's place, right? Tied to the altar, ready to be killed uh, for our sins. But Jesus, friends, is, is the ram in the thicket rescuing us once and for all from such a fate. And if you ascribe to the theory that Mount Moriah is, uh, in Abraham's story, is the same Mount Moriah the temple is built on, then all of this takes place upon the same hollowed stretch of earth, centuries apart from one another. So uh, bridging context, it pulls all of this together. So we've connected the story of Abraham and Isaac directly to the story of Jesus on the cross. And if you want to further bridge context, you could dig even deeper. You could look more into the role of Abraham's covenant with God, the, the imagery of the sacrificial lamb, the passages uh, that uplift Abraham as a character of, of exemplary faithfulness. But no matter what, in order to truly appreciate this story, we have to connect it with other passages in Scripture. And it, it adds uh, incredibly to the, the overall story of Scripture and God's plan for humanity. Finally, we arrive at application. And I'll uh, rouse Stephen here in a second because uh, he only has a couple minutes till he's up. Um, but we arrive at ac application, our, our goal for today. Anytime we study Scripture, it's critically important that we actually get to application, right? Because otherwise, everything else we talk about is only good for puffing up the brains if we don't get to truly understand and appreciate what it, what it means for us, how it changes us, how we can apply it on the other side. And I chose this passage in particular once again because the application piece uh, quite, packs quite a punch um, in, in so many different ways. Many people have expressed throughout history that John 3.16 is, is essentially the message of the Gospels all boiled down into to one verse. Well, Genesis 22, I see as the Old Testament narrative illustration of the message of John, John 3.16. So uh, let's break down the application. First takeaway here is this potent reminder of God's perfect love for his children. Many people would hesitate to dub this passage as an example of God's love because he's putting Abraham through this horrific ordeal. Um, Abraham would carry the trauma of this with, with him for years, right? But when you approach Scripture with the baseline reality that God is God, that we are not God, that he is perfect, and we are not perfect, we're greatly flawed, and that we deserve to die on account of our sins, what we really see in this passage is a beautiful illustration of God's unending grace. God had provided Abraham and, and Sarah with the gift of a son, not because they had earned it, but because he chose to bless them in the midst of their trial of, of barrenness. The testing, although traumatic for Abraham, is also 
an example of God's love, much like the, the love, any love of a, a parent teaching their child an important lesson about obedience and respect. A, a tough love is still love, right? It may not be pleasant, but it's enacted out of a spirit of, of love the parent has for their child. But finally, you see the climactic demonstration of God's love in the abundant grace of, of excusing Abraham from having to deliver the death sentence that all humans rightfully deserve upon his own son, but rather to have this perfect substitute show up just in the nick of time. And of course, all of this foreshadows the moment in which the substitute will not be a wandering ram in the thicket, but the beloved son of God himself. God will not ask his children to demonstrate love in a manner that he's not willing to do himself. Uh, what other application can we draw from this? God is, is willing to test his children, right? And uh, we need to be okay with that. Whether we, we see it in the moment, testing uh, by God is a healthy thing, demonstrating the willingness to, to sacrifice everything in our lives uh, to God in any moment is, is important, that we're prepared to do so. Um, and uh, sometimes testing is something that God need not initiate. We need to be prepared to do for ourselves. We need to recognize in our lives when, when things are out of order and, and we've granted something more value than it, it should be, and we need to test ourselves and, and pull back from something in order to put God back in his rightful place. Uh, but let's let's get down to the, the nuts and bolts here. One valuable exercise that we use when discussing application is uh, addressing three simple questions. And that's what I want to close with here to summarize the application. Uh, the first of those questions is, what does this passage say about God? Uh, what do we learn about God from this passage? God, number one, God can and does ask us to make mighty sacrifices at times if he believes that such a sacrifice will nudge us closer to him and further along in our faith walk. So God is willing to ask us to make sacrifices. Number two, God empathizes with our pain and suffering. Thus, will only allow us to suffer to the extent which our suffering will move us further along in our faith journey. Uh, number three, God is okay with us not knowing what our future holds. I know we don't like that, but God is okay with that. Uh, thus, our fears can be warranted or they could be completely unwarranted. All of this is to increase our trust in him along the way. And number four, out of his love for us, God stops short of asking us to make the ultimate sacrifice. And instead, through Jesus, he pays the penalty uh, in our place. The second question we address, what does this passage say about me? So we need to know what it says about God. We need to know what it says about us. Number one, I am not in charge. My life belongs to God and the circumstances I face are in his control. Number two, I am loved, not with the casual distant love, but with the love that cares enough to challenge me and push me to succeed in my spiritual journey. Number three, I do not know and am not meant to know my future. <laughs> I am meant solely to trust God with the present moment. All right, and finally, the third question when engaging application is this. What does this passage say about our relationship with God? This is the, the biggest, most important takeaway anytime we're doing application. Number one, in this relationship, God knows what's best for me. I must defer to his plans for my life, just like Abraham did in that moment. Number two, in this relationship, I'm never meant to suffer more than is necessary to learn to trust in God. God doesn't want to see me suffer. He wants to grant me a reprieve from my suffering. 
And finally, number three, my trust in God and acceptance of his love comes first in my life. Everything else in my life, even the life of my own children, the other things that are the most important to me in life, they must come second. They must defer to this, this pursuit of God in, in my relationship with him. And they can even be utilized, even in unpleasant ways, uh, to be a part of that process of being drawn closer to God in relationship. Uh, so we kind of wrap up exactly where we started with the importance of relationship. And uh, Stephen is, is arousing himself and uh, rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. And uh, he's, he's excited to dig into his passage and uh, a little dueling sermon experiment here. So what do you have for us, Stephen? Where are you going to take us? Um, yeah, I'm excited if... If, uh, if you want to pause it at this point and stretch, you can do that. Stretch and stretch out your back and arms and legs. And then we'll um, look at this passage that I have here. A passage, probably one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Luke chapter 7, um, verses 36 through 50. So I'm going to read this passage and then we'll quickly kind of break it down um, in, in kind of the same format as Paul but probably a little bit shorter, let's hope. Um, all right, verse 36. Um, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in, in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees um, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, and that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50 neither one of them had the money to pay him back so he forgave the debts of both now which of them will love him more Simon replied I suppose the one who had who had the bigger debt forgiven you have judged correctly Jesus said then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon do you see this woman I came into your house you did not give me any water for my feet but she wiped but she but she wet my feet with her tears and with her hair, and you did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So that is the passage. We're going to break it down in the four sections. So first you look at genre. This passage is written in the Gospel of Luke, which this genre is a gospel or a narrative, kind of just like Paul's is a narrative. The goal and the purpose of the Gospels is to tell the story of Jesus in a way that helps us understand him from a perspective of him as Savior of the world. The Gospels do have a purpose in telling us the, the reasons why to follow the Messiah, Jesus. 
This story in particular is sharing an insight into how Jesus interacts with both the religious leaders and the outcasts of society. The historical context is that Jesus was invited to eat at the Pharisee's house. They sat down and reclined on cushions beside the table, as was the custom back then. So they wouldn't sit in chairs, they would sit on on the ground on cushions. It um, it was most likely, since Jesus was a public figure, that the door to this meal remained open and people could listen in on their conversations, and which is, explains why the woman would have walked in or ran in. It is important to understand the significance of the alabaster jar of perfume. This perfume most likely cost 300 denarii or more, which would be the average person's annual wage. That's pretty crazy, so that just shows how expensive and how important this alabaster jar is. Because um, it, it was the same price as someone's annual, average person's annual wage. This shows the woman's humility and great respect for Jesus. It would have taken great courage for a woman who was who uh, was known in the community as not a respectable woman to approach Jesus. So she was probably most likely a, um, a prostitute, even though it doesn't say what her sins were. But that, that, that's probably the most likely um, explanation. People like this woman would have been disowned by their families, so she probably would have been just out really living in the streets um, and, and been ashamed and disowned. Um, she was also would be someone the religious leaders would not have helped. They would have they would keep her away at a great distance. So um, for her to run into that room with a bunch of religious leaders and, and with a man who claimed to be the Messiah is a really courageous act of faith, really, on her part, a courageous act. Um, as the act of wa- And also the act of washing someone's feet in that time was an act of uh, real um, taking, this, taking the um, action of a servant. So to wash someone else's feet was the act that a servant would do um, towards the people who would come in. Because, I mean, you're walking in sandals and, of course, your feet are covered in all the dirt and the dust. So looking at bridging context, um, the, the, this passage has many connections to other passages throughout the Bible that focus on grace, love, and forgiveness. This passage is similar to other stories of how, quote-unquote, sinners react when they come in contact with Jesus. Um, they are changed and transformed. So this passage has connections to Jesus' encounter with several blind men, uh, Jesus' encounter with a mute man, um, Jesus' encounter with the Matthew, the tax collector, um, Jesus' encounter with the demon-possessed man, and many, many others, where Jesus comes into contact with people, um, lepers as well, that he comes in contact with um, people who are outcasted, who are shunned, who are unclean or impure, or whatever it may be. Um, and they have this pretty amazing reaction when they come into encounter with Jesus. So this this passage falls into those contexts. Um, This passage also relates to many other passages of the Pharisees not understanding their own sins and their need for forgiveness and how they view and treat sinners or outcasts. So it it relates to other passages of how the Pharisees understand their sins and their need for forgiveness and also relates um, to how the Pharisees treat sinners, quote-unquote, or outcasts. So this is clearly seen when Jesus and his disciples are eating with Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, and the Pharisees say, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So this passage in Matthew um, clearly uh, has a crossover to this passage in Luke chapter 7. 
Um, and Jesus says to the Pharisees, it is not, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus' statement in this, in this uh, passage in Matthew could have been said at the exact same moment um, as, as this passage in Luke. Um, so there's correlation, there's a context, bridging the context between um, all the Gospels, that Jesus has a similar interaction with people, uh, with the Pharisees and with people who are outcasts. So um, getting down now to the last part, application. So we break it down in three, the exact same three ways that Paul did it. So first we look at what does this say about God? So what does it say about God? It says that Jesus forgives. Looking at the historical context, other religious leaders did their best to avoid and not help people like this woman or not help people um, who were outcast or who they deemed, quote-unquote, sinners. And the reason I say, quote-unquote, sinners is because um, the Pharisees were themselves sinners who, uh, matter of fact, very blind sinners who did not see their own sin. They saw the sins in others, but they did not see the sins in themselves. Um, so what, again, going back to what does this say about God, it also says, um, but Jesus being considered a prophet by some and the Messiah, Jesus reached out to this, to reached out to people like this woman. Um, a, f a matter of fact, Jesus's mission was to reach people like her. It shows that God is in the mission of saving those who have been forgotten by society and the community. It also shows that those who do not think that they need forgiveness or or think they only need a little bit of forgiveness, don't quite understand their own sins. So in turn, they don't understand God's love. So that's kind of application. What does it say about God? What does this passage say about us? Um, well, this passage says that we all need forgiveness, all of us, those who have grown up in the church or those who have not grown up in the church, those who have gone to Sunday school every day or every Sunday, um, and those who did not go to Sunday school. Um, it is important for us to know the great costs of our forgiveness and, and that without Christ, we are completely and totally lost. So um, it is important for us to know that our works and what we have done does not save us. It is purely God's grace and his forgiveness. Um, if we believe that we have any part in our own salvation, our love for Jesus will be compromised. As you can see in the Pharisees, the Pharisees, in a sense, thought they earned um, some sort. They, they thought they only needed to be forgiven for little, so they only loved Jesus for little. It is important that when we read this story, we identify ourselves with this woman. Um, she here is not just an example. She's not just an example of how God loves people like her, but she is um, her but she is as herself crying and weeping before the Savior. So we need to see ourselves as her crying and weeping before our Savior because um, of the great love that we have for him, because that we understand the great costs of forgiveness. So it's important that when we read this story, we identify with her, not just seeing her as an example of who Jesus loves, but seeing her as ourselves, identifying with her, um, and saying, Lord, I am unworthy of your forgiveness, and I'm pouring out myself, excuse me, pouring out myself to you. And just like she took her alabaster jar, the most expensive, probably the most expensive and most important thing to her, just, just goes to what Paul said about sacrifice, that 
God called Abraham to give up his son. And then this woman gives up her most expensive, most important thing she owns. She gave it up to Jesus, believing that he was more important. And, and, and again, so when we look at this story, we relate to her and we say, we also willingly give up everything, Jesus, um, for you because we love you more, uh, more than anything else. And the last part is, what does this say about our relationship with God and us? Um, to repeat what I said earlier, it shows that all people are sinners before God in need of forgiveness. Um, that will, and the forgiveness would ultimately cost the life of Jesus. Um, God desires to save us, um, that there isn't anyone God, there isn't anyone that God would reject from saving, from his saving grace. Um, it may answer the question, questions for you as that, there's God won't turn anyone away um, from coming to him and, and seeking repentance. Um, and also, it's sometimes um, when we listen to the testimony of people, so a lot of times we, we, we can hear the testimonies of people who had those great epic testimonies of coming to Christ, and, and you see how their life is transformed, and you see how much they love Jesus. Um, that gives us a hint into, like, they understand the weight of sin, and they understand all um, that Christ forgave them of. And I think it is important for us as well, that even though you may not think you have a quote-unquote great testimony, um, doesn't change the fact that we are all in need of Jesus, and that we all in some way express a great love towards Jesus. And the Christian walk is all about understanding and growing in the knowledge of Jesus. And in that process, you're growing more and more thankful for his grace and forgiveness and love. Again, we must picture ourselves as this woman, not just an example of how God loves all people, but that we are the woman, that we are that, that woman in the story. We are weeping before God and pouring out our alabaster jar, our treasure possessions to God, offering all of ourselves to him. So we, we relate to her um, in this passage, and, and I think when you when you do that, when you relate um, to her and you identify to her, I think this passage really opens up um, and just really um, gives us a uh, an insight into how we can grow in our relationship with God. So that is it, and uh, that's kind of the end of this series of how to read your Bible, how to understand and read the Bible, and. We just really pray that um, this series has been really beneficial to you, has really helped and strengthened you in your walk with Christ, and also helped with your own personal devotions, um, and also help with your, if you're doing Discipleship One classes or Bible study classes or whatever, we just hope that you can take some of this material um, to them as well. Um, just a reminder that we still have our 8.30 parking lot service, 10 o'clock in-person service, and our 11.30 streaming service. Um, keep your eyes peeled for some updates coming very, very soon um, with, with in-person services. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray that you have a blessed week.